welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about The Hearing Trumpet by Leonora Carrington. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Joanna Moorhead, a veteran journalist in the UK and the author of Surreal Spaces, The Life and Art of Leonora Carrington, published recently by Princeton University Press, as well as The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington. She joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Joanna, welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Thank you, John. Very nice to be here. Why is The Hearing Trumpet by Leonora Carrington a great book? Like all great books, it takes you, it takes us, the readers, into another world. I think that's what always what we want from a book, what any great book, any book, you know, should do. And I think in the case of the world that The Hearing Trumpet takes us into, it's a really fantastical world. It's a world that few of us are likely to have been anywhere like it before (laughs) it's a world that's in some ways completely imaginary and in other ways very familiar a world we can both imagine and feel connected with and i think that 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 that's why it's a great book we're going to talk about this book the fantastical world it introduces us to what it says about our own world also the genre or style of surrealism, and also the visual art and paintings of Leonore Carrington. She wasn't just a writer, she was also a painter. Joanna, though, let's start with how this book, The Hearing Trumpet, begins, published in 1974. We meet immediately our first-person narrator. She's Marion Leatherby. She's 92 years old. And the first paragraph of this novel, she receives a gift from a friend of a hearing trumpet. So what's a hearing trumpet and how does this story get started? Well, a hearing trumpet, as I understand it from the way Leonora describes it, is a, an object through which you, someone who is hard of hearing can see better. And in the case of the hearing trumpet give, gifted to Marion Leatherby, the uh, protagonist of this tale, um, it's a very grand hearing trumpet. Leonora describes it in great detail, a very ornate and large hearing trumpet. And the reason her friend gives her this hearing trumpet is so that she can hear conversations, hear things going on in the house that she shares with her son and his family. And that's really the beginning of the whole story, because when she goes home and uses the hearing trumpet, she overhears a conversation that is is rather alarming for her um, because it turns out that her son and his partner, his wife and their child, her grandson, are planning to move her to an old people's home. Marion is 92 at the time, but she's certainly not thinking herself of, of leaving the house where she lives in a city, a country that's obviously very similar to the Mexico where Leonora Carrington was living. So in many ways, Marion is very much Leonora, but the, the story that unfolds in The Hearing Trumpet is what happens to Marion in the extraordinary old people's home that she that she moves to live in. Let's talk about how she gets there then. So she's living, as you say, with, with her family, her son Galahad, which is an interesting name, his wife Muriel, their son, her grandson Robert. There's also a bunch of cats. And she has this hearing trumpet. She overhears them talking about her and saying that she needs to move on. What happens next? How does she get then to this old people's home where they want to put her? 
she's an adventurer, Marion Leatherby. And I think from the beginning of it, she sees that there's an adventure um, to be had. And she packs up everything. She packs the things she thinks she'll need for the next part of her life. And off she goes to this place that kind of a bit like a sort of palace or a kind of castle-like like, um, uh, structure. And there she encounters the rather unusual couple who run this home and the extraordinary other residents. We also get a sense of the humor of the book. You get it immediately with the hearing trumpet, the idea of this this woman holding this ornate trumpet up to her ear as she eavesdrops on her family. That's just a comic element to begin with. But as she's packing up to leave, she has a little dry humor quip where she writes, uh, where she says, the narrator says, one has to be very careful what one takes when one goes away forever. And she's packing tools and bird seed and sugar. And then she puts in some clothes, as she says, to prevent them from rattling about. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a very funny book, I think. And it's, um, it's full of Leonora's, um, what I would say is her characteristic kind of dry humor and her ability to kind of see situations from a, from a different perspective, which was very much how she was. So our narrator then, 92-year-old eccentric Marion Leatherby, winds up in this institution and she meets Dr. Gambit. Who is he and what is this place like? Dr. Gambit is the um, the owner of the home, or certainly the the proprietor, the person who's running it. He's a uh, not not very old person, and he has a wife um, who's who's also involved in the running of the of the home. I mean, everybody in this novel is a pretty eccentric character, and they are fairly they're an eccentric couple. And uh, and then the home is inhabited by they're mostly elderly women. Some of them a bit older than Marion. It's strange to have a protagonist, a main character, who's a 92-year-old woman, isn't it? That's unusual in literature, obviously. Why do you think Leonora Carrington wanted to do this? She lived herself to be 94 years old, but she wrote this many years earlier. Why do you think she chose an older protagonist? She wrote this novel probably in the 1960s, when she would have been, what, in her 50s? It's a bit unclear exactly when she wrote it, but Leonora was always very interested in the condition of being an older female. I knew her when she was older. In fact, I spent her 92nd birthday with her, and I remember we spent a lot of the day laughing about Marion and how she'd now got to the age that the protagonist was in The Hearing Trumpet. I mean, I knew her when she was in her 80s and 90s, but I think even before she got to that age herself, she was very interested in the condition of being an older woman because she felt that our society puts so much emphasis on being young, maybe particularly for women being young. And she felt that the adventure of life absolutely continues through one's whole life and that the the condition of being in your very much later years is no less a part of the adventure of life than being in your teens or 20s. And I think that it was partly to play out those ideas that she wrote this book. Um, and you mentioned, you, you've already mentioned that she's, of course, a visual artist as well as a writer. And uh, some of her paintings, particularly from the 1980s, when she herself was by then quite well, getting older, as we all do. Some of her paintings, I'm thinking of paintings like Cronflower, which shows a, a bunch of 
women in their, you know, get women late in, in later in life um, speaking on the street and the and their faces, the lines on their faces are kind of mirrored in the in the um, cracks on the pavement. So I think, yeah, she was very interested in what it meant to be older and also what older people contribute and contributed, contribute now as well to, to society in general. Let's turn to your personal connection to her, which you've mentioned. You're her, her biographer. You've written two books about her. You're also her cousin. So what is your, what is your connection to Leonora Carrington? How did you meet this writer and artist? Well, I certainly didn't know her when I was a child because she had disappeared from our family in the 1930s, in 1937. I didn't even know that I, uh, when I was a teenager and a younger woman. I just knew there'd been somebody and she disappeared. And it wasn't until I was in my early 40s and a chance meeting with an art historian who happened to be Mexican that I remembered that this woman who was, you know, uh, there'd been some kind of scandal and this woman had disappeared from our family. I remembered that Mexico was involved in her story. I knew art was involved in her story. So I said to this woman, I'm sure you will never have heard of my father's cousin, but, you know, she disappeared. I think she's in Mexico or was in Mexico. I didn't even know if she was still alive. This was 2006. And I said her name, Leonora Carrington, and this woman said, oh, my goodness, you know, didn't you know she's the most famous artist in Mexico today? You must go and find her. So um, against the odds, because I'm not a travel writer and never have been, but uh, things kind of fell into shape in an odd way, actually. And um, uh, I was the mother of four young children, but I found a way of leaving them and going off to Mexico and knocking on Leonora's door. We'd not, we hadn't even spoken at that time. I just managed to get in touch with her via, via her gallery. So we not had direct contact until I phoned her up when I was in Mexico City and then went round uh, on my first morning to meet her. She was born in 1917, died in 2011. What's the mystery? How did she go from England to Mexico? And why didn't she know about this? Well, the mystery, as it turned out, all hinged on the fact that, well, really it hinged on the fact that she just, she she always knew she was an artist and she knew that she couldn't be an artist in our family or possibly in England. So she had been uh, looking for a way out, I think. She'd been looking for a way out for a while. And then in 1937, she met the surrealist artist Max Ernst and began a relationship with him that continued for a couple of years. She became his much younger lover because he was in his 40s and she was only just 20. And she left England at that point and her family, never to see her father again, in fact, uh, and, and moved to Paris. And in Paris, she, with with as Max's um, partner, she became part of the of the surrealists who were had been in Paris for some decades by then. So this was the moment of kind of mature surrealism. Um, so as as well as Max, there were people like uh, well, there was Picasso who was you know connected, but obviously not not a surrealist as such. There was definitely Picasso, and she knew him. There was also Dali. There was André Breton, Duchamp. There was a whole host, and then there were the women like Merit Oppenheim. So Leonora was kind of almost parachuted into the centre of movement. She spent uh, some time in Paris, and then she had a whole series of adventures, which is partly why I wrote the first book I wrote to to to, to uh, tell that story. She had a whole series of adventures against the backdrop of the Second World War that eventually culminated in her 
marrying a Mexican who Picasso had introduced her to in Paris. She re-met this Mexican, she married him in Lisbon, and they travelled first to New York and then to Mexico City. She arrived in Mexico City in 1942, and although she had long periods when she lived in the US, when she was in her 50s and 60s and 70s, she was she lived in Mexico for the rest of her life. So we'll turn to her visual art in just a moment, but what happened then when you knocked on her door? Yeah, I knocked on her door. It was uh, I was very nervous. Um, she came to the door, this kind of very slight figure. She was very slim and not very tall, dressed completely in black. And I said, you know, I'm Joanna Moorhead. I, I knew, you know, she knew who I was. I just phoned and she'd asked me to come around. In our family, Leonora's nickname was Prim. So I'd known her up to this point as Prim. So when I met her on the doorstep, the first thing I said to her was, Prim, it's so lovely to meet you. And she said to me, it's not Prim anymore. I'm not Prim anymore. I'm Leonora. And I understood in that moment that what she was saying to me was that she was a different person now. She was a different person from the person remembered at home in my in our family. And I really respected that. And I always understood that she that she had moved her whole life on and become somebody, the same person, but the person she was meant to be. I went there thinking I would just write one piece for my for my newspaper, The Guardian. And when I was leaving a week later, I spent every day that first week with Leonora. When I was leaving on the last day, I said, Leonora, it's not enough. You know, I really want to, please, can I come back? I want to spend more time with you. And she said, absolutely, come back. Um, you find a way and I'll be here waiting. And I went to see her twice a year after that for the rest of her life. So in the last five years of her life, I visited her twice a year and sometimes I'd stay in Mexico City three weeks or a month and, and spent every day with her. So I got to know her pretty well. At this point, she was a celebrated painter. Describe her artwork. What's it like? I remember saying to her one day when we were looking, we didn't spend a lot of time, by the way, looking at her art, but this particular day we were for some reason looking at one of her paintings. And I said, goodness, the thing about, about your paintings, there's always a lot going on. So they are... Uh, her canvases, her paintings are not often just one or two characters. Like the hearing trumpet, actually, her her paintings take you into a whole other world. Her best paintings, certainly, which I would say are from the 1940s, because she had a big, long life and, and, and you know, many periods, many different moments. You know, a painting changed over the years. Um, I think her best time was in the 1940s and the paintings from that time have a whole world. They take you into fantastical things are happening. Um, the creatures are not always are not recognisable. Some Often they're sort of half beast and half human. Trees might be half beast and half tree. And also her, her, her paintings often have an underworld and a sky world as well. One of the most famous paintings, at least in the United States, hangs at the Met, the big art museum in New York City. It's a self-portrait, sometimes called the Inn of the Dawn Horse. It shows her with crazy hair, strange animals. It's actually on the back cover of my paperback copy of your book, The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington. Describe that painting for us. What makes that a noteworthy piece of art by her? Well, this painting really is all about the story that I was just telling you about why she left England and why she left our family. One of the things to note about a Leonora Carrington painting is that she identifies with the horse. 
as her animal familiar. So what is happening in the in any of her paintings to the horse or horses is usually what's happening to Leonora. And in this particular painting, this self-portrait, there are two horses. The one of the horses is a rocking horse and it's behind her. It's kind of um, in, the, in midair behind her on the wall. And that horse is obviously a wooden horse. It's, it's, it's static. Outside the window, there's a real horse, you know, an animal horse, the actual creature running through the countryside. And uh, an interpretation, my interpretation of this painting is that um, the, the rocking horse symbolises the, the Leonora who, who couldn't move, who was just kind of um, stultified, trapped really, by the circumstances into which she'd been born, which were very privileged, by the way. She was very fortunate in many ways, but she wasn't fortunate in the way she wanted to be fortunate because having a lot of money and a big house and a lot of privileges, they weren't the kind of privileges that she wanted. They, the, the, what she, she found what she wanted with, with Max Ernst and with the surrealist movement. And then the horse outside the window is her running free, as she was able to do when she left England um, and and got to France and joined the Surrealists. I mean, there's a lot else, like as in any painting, there's a lot more going on in that in that um, painting. As you say, there's her hair is a very recognisable part of um, herself. She's she also portrays herself as a kind of androgynous character. You, you know, she's kind of flat chested and she's wearing riding breeches. She's kind of sitting in a in a kind of with her legs. Apart, she's not. She's not being ladylike. She's challenging us, and uh, you know that 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 is definitely a big part of her persona. This is a message from our friends at American Habits, from the State Policy Network. We the people. Do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, Come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Joanna, let's discuss this term surrealism. We've used it a couple of times. But what is it? Sometimes when you hear someone say surreal today, they mean just unusual or different or a little bit weird or unexpected, but surrealism is something else. What is surrealism as an artistic movement? Surrealism as an art movement is, is all connected to the, to, uh, to the unconscious mind, to the stuff that's going on in all of us that, that isn't at the front of our minds and the, 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 the world that happens in our dreams and the world maybe inside ourselves that we don't that we don't often examine or that we can't examine because it's too deeply inside ourselves, but it's there. And I would say that the how the interpretation of surrealism in Leonora's work is, as I've already mentioned, you know, she, she has all these worlds, all these different things going on, both in her writing and on her canvases. And I would say that surrealism for her 
is about what else is going on. What else is going on in this moment, in this landscape, in this world? I think a lot of us or a lot of people maybe are very keen on just the thing, the physical stuff. You know, I can see it. I can feel it. It's here. Leonora was very interested in what is here, but I can't see it or feel it. So that might be to do with our history. It might be to do with our unconscious mind, our dreams, the other worlds that swirl around us. This is the territory of, of surrealism, and it's very much the natural territory of Leonora. Now, let's bring this back to her writing. She's known primarily as a painter, as a visual artist, but she wrote, she has several books. The Hearing Trumpet is maybe the best known, most highly regarded of them. How does surrealism work in The Hearing Trumpet? The fact that that so many worlds swirl around inside, you know, so, so, so she's in this Marion Leatherby, who, who, Absolutely was Leonora. I mean, there's a there's a there's a strange paradox about it in a way. I knew her when she was the age Marion Leatherby was. And I sometimes used to think, did she look ahead and see the woman she would become in her 90s? Or did she in her 90s remember Marion Leatherby and make herself the character? Do you see what I mean? That she that she'd written about. Um, but either way, she was Marion Leatherby. And when I knew Leonora, she was physically constrained physically in this house and she you know she used to go out of course but her life had had you might say as as people's lives often do when they're older kind of reduced down to a space that she didn't leave that often marion leatherby's life also is reduced down to this space that she finds herself in this the gambit the home run by the gambits and the hearing trumpet take shows us how many other worlds there are even if you're stuck in that, if, if you're in a space, how many other things there are going on and how they connect to much bigger things outside of their walls. And the same thing was true of Leonora in, in, at the time I knew her when she was 92 and 93. We were in her house in Mexico City. There were a lot of other worlds swirling around. Another major figure, in addition, of course, to Marion Leatherby in the hearing trumpet is her friend Carmela. This is the friend who gives her the hearing trumpet. Who is Carmela? How does she connect with the real Leonora Carrington? Well, Carmela, I think, is very pretty clearly based on a very good friend of Leonora's in Mexico City, who is a Spanish artist called Remedios Faro. And there are most definitely elements of Car Carmela that uh, I, I remember Leonora telling me things about Remedios and then I read in the hearing trumpet that they are characteristics of, of Carmela. For example, her habit of sending letters to people she didn't know. Remedios Faro used to do that. Leonora used to do it as well, actually, a bit. But uh, we have Carmela doing it in the hearing trumpet. I mean, they were very close. Um, and there was a third woman who was also part of their group, who was called Patty Horner, who was a photographer. Um, so the three of them were all surrealist artists, and they kind of set up this uh, little kind of almost cell of surrealism. I mean, that makes it sound more formal than it was, because they kind of became each other's family. They'd all left their families behind in sort of different circumstances in Europe. Remember, this is, you know, the end of the war. None of them would ever return to the homes they'd known in Hungary and Spain and for Leonora, England. So they kind of became each other's sisters, really. They raised their children together. 
Um, Leonora had two sons and Katty Horner had a daughter. And the, the, this female friendship became the real backbone, I think, of, of, of Leonora's life. And we see that in the hearing trumpet through the friendship of Marion and Carmela. When you knew Leonora, she was English by birth. She was living in Mexico. I sometimes see her described as English, sometimes as Mexican. How would you put it? Was she an English expatriate? Was she Anglo-Mexican? Was she something else? She definitely was not Mexican. She, I think possibly like a lot of people who leave where they're from and and completely make their lives somewhere else, where she'd come from was always really, really important to her. So I used to think that the house in Mexico City, where I spent so much time with her, where she'd lived for 60 odd years, felt a bit more like Lancashire, the Lancashire where she was born and I was born, than it, than it felt like Mexico City. I think she was always very grateful to Mexico. It gave her the backdrop that she needed in her life to, to, to paint uh, and to write, so to, to live out the person, the artist she was. Um, she was always very, very grateful for everything that Mexico gave her, but I don't think she ever felt Mexican. Joanna, you've written two books on Leonora Carrington, and the new one is called Surreal Spaces, The Life and Art of Leonora Carrington. What's in this book? What's new? What do you say there? How can you connect it to visual art and also her literature, specifically the hearing trumpet? My my new book is basically looking at the places and spaces in Leonora's life and how they played out in both her uh, visual art and her writing. Her work was deeply, strongly autobiographical, and she told me that herself. Her writing I'd say particularly her writing, particularly the hearing trumpet, um, but really all her canvases, because, you know, there's the, she drew so heavily on this unconscious, on the unconscious. So in her paintings, I can see places and spaces she knew, and then, and then places I have no idea where they are, and she may not have known either, because she was drawing on something, you know, maybe from her dream world or, or you know, deeply inside herself. But everything on the pages of her book and books and in her paintings, those are worlds that she has that she has felt part of, I believe. And the hearing trumpet is actually uh, very much connects to her life in England, which I think is interesting. Her canvases also very much connect her life in England. And there's this kind of paradox about Leonora's life and work that she worked so hard, fought so hard to get away from England, and yet many decades later, by which time she's in Mexico, she's put all of it behind her, her family, her continent, her country, she's still painting the scenes from that, uh, from that time in her life. And in The Hearing Trumpet, the book written uh, many, many decades after she moved to Mexico, she's describing the world of her childhood, the, the landscape and the, the family houses, which I know and have visited and know well, of her family. Let's wrap up with a two-part question, which is, what's the case for Leonora Carrington today in the 2020s? And so the two-part question is, what's the case for her visual art? Why does it appeal to us? Why should we look at it today? And then 
Why The Hearing Trumpet? What makes that book worthwhile right now? I think that Leonora's paintings in particular show her as an extraordinarily visionary artist. I think she is seeing things about the world that that most people are not going to see for many, many decades to come. So what I mean by that is that in the 1940s, if you look at um, works like The Giantess, which shows a a figure of of a woman, a giant figure holding an egg in her hands, that egg represents the planet, the world, the fragility of the world. But this is 1942. And this is, you know, something that we're acutely aware of. And I think one of the extraordinary things about Leonora is she was so far ahead of her time. She was so far ahead of her time on on the environment, as I've just said. She was so far ahead of her time in terms of feminism. And she was so far ahead of her time in terms of the interconnectedness of everything. Because I think if you look at her paintings, that's what you see. You see how everything connects, the unconscious and the conscious worlds, life and death, animals and humans. Everything is connected. And we know that now. And we're more and more aware of it now in these years of the 21st century with everything our planet and and humanity's up against. And I think Leonora was already seeing these things back the way. And I think that that says something about the the importance of these issues, that some people could see it. Uh, she's, also, she's also very interested in things, uh, in things to do with spirituality, but outside of organised religion, which again is very much how the world is in, uh, in, in, the, in the moment we're in now. So I think that she absolutely speaks to our generation and to our world today. And I think the hearing trumpet brings many of those elements out. And particularly, it's about the condition, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, of being older. Well, we know we live in a world where more and more of us are going to live to be older. Leonora was uh, in her 90s when she died, and that is going to be more and more common going forward. And I think that her idea about the, the purpose of later life is also very much of the moment and really interesting to our, you know, really important in our generation and in our times. Joanna Moorhead, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about The Hearing Trumpet by Leonora Carrington. You're so welcome. It's been lovely. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Please send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at haymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.